The Heroes of Yuri's Night, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Los Angeles celebration of Yuri's Night came a bit early this year, but it was no less spectacular or exciting than ever. Join me for conversations with International Space Station astronaut, aquanaut, and artist Nicole Stott, Virgin Galactic CEO George Whitesides, citizen astronaut Anusha Ansari, our own Bill Nye the Science Guy, and others who partied for the final frontier under Space Shuttle Endeavor. Later, we'll celebrate the night sky and another space trivia contest with planetary chief scientist Bruce Betts. This year brought the 18th worldwide celebration of the first human beings' flight into space. That was Yuri Gagarin, of course, who achieved orbit and returned safely on April 12, 1961. Yuri's Night was created by a group of people, including yours truly, who believe that our destiny is among the stars. We wanted to share our passion and joy with the whole planet. This year once again saw hundreds of related events covering nearly every continent. While much of the attention goes to the big parties, we've also started to see gatherings designed for kids— like the one that happened on April 7th at the terrific Columbia Memorial Space Center in Downey, California. That's where I met Hannah McCallum, a young propulsion engineer at Virgin Orbit, the rocket company that was spun off from Virgin Galactic not long ago. You're coordinating all of this, right? Yeah, I am. So this is Yuri's Night Kids. It's a event themed around Yuri's Night, which is to celebrate the first man who went to space, Yuri Gargarin. And the goal of this event is to really show the next generation that STEM, uh, science, engineering, technology, and mathematics, is fun and exciting. And so we do that by having them do a whole bunch of interactive activities uh, led by people from companies like Virgin Orbit and Virgin Galactic and other aerospace companies throughout the LA region. How long have you been involved with Yuri's Night? I've been involved in Yuri's Night. This is my third year. Three years ago, Loretta asked me to put together a kids event, and the first year was a little bit small, and then the past year, it grew bigger, and then this year, it is what it is today. We think about 1,200 people have showed up so far. And that's Loretta Whitesides, of course, one of the founders of Yuri's Night. Yes, that is Loretta Whitesides, one of the founders of Yuri's Night. So, this is really special to me. I mean, I love the big party. I'll be there with you, apparently, under Endeavor tonight. But it's not for this crowd. This is pretty special. And they told me that they think they might have like double the attendance this year that uh, they had for Yuri's Kids last year. Yeah, I believe that's actually accurate. Uh, last year we had about 1,000 people. I, last I checked, at least we had 1,200, but that was at noon. So we might have had all 2,000. Um, we were counting with wristbands, so I think we gave away all 2,000 wristbands today. When I found you, you were out at a, at a baseball diamond firing off rockets. So that's one of the best things about this place is that they have a baseball field at which we can launch smaller um, A-class engine rockets. So very small, solid rockets, but it's always the wow factor. It's the fire, it's the whoosh, it's watching the parachutes deploy that gets kids really, really, really excited about rocketry. In fact, that's how I got excited about aerospace back when I was a kid. Model rocketry. Very much model rocketry. I did it with my dad. We took wrapping paper tubes and Easter eggs and built our own rockets and then attached engines to them and load them off in our front uh, front yard area, which was a cul-de-sac with a 9-volt battery. Amazing. Uh, you didn't make your own engines, I hope. 
Oh, you no. still have all your fingers. <laughs> yeah, I do have all my fingers. My dad was the one who handled the engines <laughs> while we were a little bit younger. Um, but yeah, now I actually get to play with Big Rockets. Hannah, I look forward to seeing you under Endeavor this evening. Looking forward to see you as well. Hannah McCallum of Virgin Orbit and Yuri's Night. It's not far from the Columbia Memorial Space Center to the California Science Center, final home of Space Shuttle Endeavor, where Yuri's Night LA has found its home the past few years. The party was just getting started when I sat down with Planetary Society CEO Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill, the party is is underway. Oh yes, it's Yuri's night and the feeling's right. <laughs> you already you did a sound check and people thought the program was starting. Well, this was they uh, this is a detail, Matt, but they they wanted the one of the people performing in the show to do the sound check saying one two check, hey, <laughs> one two without any apparent so-called situational awareness as we say in the military that if you put the recognizable guy on the stage, people will draw conclusions. It's just, yeah. who am I to judge? I'm uh, just a guy. All right, lead on. Not your first uh, Yuri's Night. It doesn't have to be. So there's Captain Kirk. There's a lot of, um, it's, it's kind of a Comic-Con really focused on space. And, you know, I'm so old, Matt. How old are you? I'm so old. I remember when Yuri Gagarin flew around the world. I was four years old. And it was a big deal. And my understanding is the guy was a test pilot, right stuff kind of guy, and they were concerned the retro rockets were not going to function uh, all the way up to function uh, that you might uh, hope for. So he jumped out of the capsule and parachuted to Earth from 10,000 feet. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It Way is. to go, Yuri. He's we should have a night for you. <laughs> He's worth celebrating, that's for sure. Yeah. This has been going on now for years and years. This is a celebration of space exploration. Two questions we all ask, where did we come from? Are we alone in the universe? If you want to answer those questions, you got to explore space. And what charms all of us or drives all of us is the idea that we could go work and to the extent possible, live comfortably in space. We're here at the California Science Center in the shadows of the uh, Endeavour space shuttle, and uh, every mark, every imperfection tells a story. It really gives you pause for thought what an enormous vehicle it is, how it flew on orbit for years, landed successfully. It's really an amazing thing, and, and, and we shipped it all the way up here. And I'm so old, Matt. How old are you? I'm so old. I was working at Boeing when the 747 transport aircraft was getting upgraded some hydraulics i was standing on the dry lake bed when that 747 flew over when the first capture test with enterprise the the, wow. the, the shuttle that I never say made wow it to space. you my friend wow it was fun but uh, as an engineer the space shuttle was uh, a kludge i mean i don't mean to be critical mm. i am being critical it it ended up costing a billion and a half a flight that's just too much money to get that job done so now we have the space launch system in development, and SpaceX, of course, is going wild. And nobody's really sure what Blue Origin's up to, but it's going to be cool. Yuri's Night is a celebration, really, of the beginning of human spaceflight, 1960. It's really remarkable. I shudder a little bit when I, every time I've walked in this room and I look up at that spacecraft. Well, it's, it's freaky. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it gives you pause. 
this is a product of a lot of political compromise and a lot of remarkable engineering. And the biggest job that these, to my way of thinking, this spacecraft and the International Space Station does is really statecraft. Brings people from different countries and different space agencies together, working together in Earth orbit. It's really a, a worthy thing. Somebody said space brings out the best in us. Yes, who would say something like that? No, it does. You solve problems that have never been solved before. And the things that engineers and uh, managers learn flying space shuttle is influencing all everything we do now in space. So this is it was a stepping stone. It was a intermediate step. But what we all want to do is send people farther and deeper into space, beyond the moon and then on to Mars. And for those of us, you out there, who want to land on the moon and have humans walk around on the moon, okay. But keep in mind, the goal is to go farther and deeper. People have been to the moon. It's a desolate place. The, the geology that was done there, that is to say the rocks that were brought back, helped us understand the age of the Earth and the origin of the moon, and that's great. But we want to go look for life, man. We want to see if there's something alive on another world. And the two places to look are Mars and Europa. And there's an argument for Enceladus uh, on Saturn, but a very strong argument. But Europa is the one that I'm, I want us to focus on next. Everybody, if we were to discover evidence of life on another world, it would change the course of history. And here on Yuri's night is the beginning of human spaceflight, the beginning of this journey to go looking for life on another world. It's a remarkable time. You're very good at this. Could I get you to come back on the radio <laughs> show now and then? <laughs> yeah. No, Matt, thank you. I'm not letting you get an insightful, brilliant uh, journalist questions. But I hope you all come to the California Science Center at some point. Look at the Endeavor. It's really a beautifully displayed. And you can get right up next to it. It doesn't matter the weather. It's in a beautiful hangar. And I hope it gives you a pause. You know, it's, as we like to say, it's about the size of a 737 airplane, but it's built for speed, extraordinary speeds. I was there for, it was a launch of STS-85, I think, during the Science Guy show uh, that was delayed. The launch was delayed because of the weather in Spain, which is where <laughs> the, one of the emergency runways was, is in the, in the event that you'd have to land early. You know how long it took to get to Spain? Seven minutes. <laughs> it's just very much out of your everyday experience, the speed of, of rocket ships. So I was all ready to wrap up, but you kept going, so now I got one more question. Yes, George, George Whitesides of Virgin Galactic. I spoke be, with him a few minutes ago. He's Congratulated gonna be, him. He's going to be in that seat in a few minutes. Good. Do you want to take a ride? Oh, yeah, but let's see seven flights at least. I mean, I'd go on the second one, but we, we make, my we make wife jokes. Would. But yeah, there's some days I, I know your wife. There's some days she'd be very happy for you to go. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I'm saying is, you guys, it's still an extraordinarily dangerous thing because of the extraordinary speeds that are involved. Speed injures. Is that the old saying? It's Speed. like it's like that. So it's really uh, they're part of this new space movement where SpaceX has this extraordinary idea to reuse boosters, and Virgin Galactic wants to take people into 
space and experience weightlessness for a few minutes and see the Earth from above. Every astronaut who's ever flown cosmonaut Taikonaut says the same thing. When you see the Earth from above the atmosphere, it changes you. It changes the way you feel about the Earth. So uh, the more people that can get up there, the better. It's fun to talk to you for more than three minutes, <laughs> but they need you on stage. Oh, we got to work. Yes, you got to go work. do what you the do. The Planetary Society has prepared a little, a little slideshow. That's me. I've prepared a little slideshow, and uh, I'm going to talk about uh, our accomplishments at the Planetary Society and try to get everybody here to join so that we can do, go farther and deeper into space. And dare I say it, Matt, change, change the, the world. world. Go share Carry the passion, on. beauty, and joy, sir. Thank you. Not long after talking with Bill Nye, Nicole Stott joined me in my little corner of the vast room housing Space Shuttle Endeavor. Nicole spent just over 100 days circling our planet, mostly on the International Space Station. While part of the ISS Expedition 21 team, she participated in the first live tweet-up from space. She did extravehicular activity, and she was the last ISS astronaut to return from space on a shuttle. She'd go into orbit one more time on STS-133. Are you like the designated Yuri's Night astronaut? Because I know you're, <laughs> you're here in L.A., and then in a few days, you're going to be at that uh, premiere event at KSC, the Space I Coast. I know, I know. I hadn't thought about myself that way, but maybe you're right. I don't know. <laughs> and I've been trying to get out here for the last four years, so I'm really excited. Maybe I'm making up for it. It sounds like you're going to catch up. You've had yeah. some of your colleagues here. Uh, yep. uh, Ms. Christopheretti, I think, yes. did I pronounce it correctly? Yep, Samantha, yeah. Lovely person who yes, we had on is. a couple of years ago. You have this unique background. Well, it's not unique, actually, because I know that there are Apollo astronauts mm -hmm. who have also become artists yep. and have praised your work. It is that intersection of art and space and more broadly science that we love to talk about on this show when we can and here's an opportunity to do that could you talk about what inspired you and and that's going to lead back into yuri's night yeah you know i think i've always been my mom always said the artsy craftsy one you know kind of that's always been part of my life but i've always loved flying and how things fly and if you want to know how things fly why wouldn't you want to know how rocket ships fly and then so those two things have been going on in my life forever. I uh, had the opportunity to paint when I was in space, which was watercolor. We could have a little conversation about that. That's you were the fun. first, right? For watercolors. As ah. it turns out, I think that uh, Richard Garriott brought up some paints and did an interesting little demonstration with stuff. I don't think he painted with brushes, but he did... He had paint in space, so so we'll give him that. I just... Uh, <laughs> you know, somebody told me, oh, Nicole, you're the first to paint in space. I'm like, how can that be? You know, but... Stranger Things. But yeah, first watercolor, we'll go there. Uh, and it was awesome because, and I wish that maybe they need to send me back for this because we didn't videotape the, the painting in space. I have one picture that my, my crewmate Bob Thirst took. The painting in space with watercolors, you could use that as a demonstration of just what it's like, what the physics of living in space is all about, from the way the water floats out and the surface tension of the brush sucking the water into it. and all. I mean, it was really beautiful and it was a lot less complicated than I thought it was going to be. Everybody takes pictures when they're up there. Yeah. You've already started to touch on how this was distinctive, how this brought something else. Uh, obviously your own mind, your own experience of it 
was yeah. part of what you were expressing. Of course, up there you can't paint in front of the window. There's no plain air thing at five miles a second. You know, what you want to paint is gone before <laughs> you can get the brush to the paper. So I had printed out a picture of something I really thought mm. was beautiful and, and painted that. But I think there's something to, you know, beyond taking a picture of something where it's your own interpretation. You're, you know, it's kind of your own thing when you when you paint it, when you draw it, that, that comes out a little bit differently. And the inspiration is certainly, you know, what I saw with my eyes, what I was able to take the picture of. But I feel like I'm, I don't know, I'm investing a little bit more of myself in it when I paint it. And I've got endless images for inspiration probably last me the rest of my life, quite honestly. And you are part of what has become a long tradition of astronaut artists. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that connection to... Uh... Uh, I absolutely do. You know, we go... The, the first that we know of was Alexei with his colored pencils drawing mm. that orbital you know, sunrise, Alexei yeah. Leonov. And, of course, you know, you have Alan Bean, who retired to become an astronaut, or retired from being an astronaut to become an artist. And he's been a wonderful mentor to me. I think I'm only the second person to retire and become, you know, take on art mm -hmm. as kind of a full-time thing. But I've just discovered more and more, and over my time working with NASA, that I think it's more of a norm to have people that you normally think of as just science-y, tech-y, astronauts, engineers, scientists, that they, for the most part, there is something creative and artistic going on there too. And I think that's more of the norm than the, the not. And I even curated an exhibit about a year and a half ago where I brought a bunch of my friends at JSC together and all of their artwork and showcased it at Space Center Houston. Mm. And I had them give me like a little two sentence blurb on how science and art have intersected in their lives. And it was so well received. I mean, we had everything from stained glass to paintings to wood sculptures and musical instruments that had flown in space, Karen Nyberg's dinosaur that she sewed while she was on the <laughs> space station. You know, I mean, those kinds of things that are just, I think it's more a blend of, of art and science and people than we tend to think, think about. And, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. this is, as I said, this is a point we like to bring out whenever we can on the yeah. show, not we don't get the opportunity often enough, yeah. that there is something at this intersection of science and art that if it's a Venn diagram, they overlap yeah. quite a bit. Absolutely. I'm looking at your tie. <laughs> I know we can't see it on the radio here or on the podcast, but we'll, I mean, we'll post a I'm looking at the tie and I'm thinking, you know, even for scientists, I think the visual and even the, the, the beautiful visual just clicks with our brains a lot more than the ones and zeros mm -hmm. do. I mean, there's a lot of ones and zeros coming back from Hubble, but is that what these people are really, I mean, they're putting it out in a way that, yeah, it makes beautiful art to hang over your sofa if you want to, to appreciate the universe. But I think that it scientifically from a, you know, how we understand what we're seeing and all those ones and zeros, it's you know, orders of magnitude easier and perhaps better, I think, to, mm. to look at it from the, the visual standpoint than just ones and zeros. Before we leave this topic of art yeah. and space, I've got to ask you about one piece, one big mixed yeah. media piece, Coastline. You know the one I'm talking about. It's just gorgeous. That is, I think you're talking about the wave. Yes. So that was my inspiration for the watercolor that I did in space, mm -hmm. too. And I've done several pieces based on it. It is a tiny little chain of islands on the northern coast of Venezuela. Literally, to me, it looked like somebody had already painted a wave 
on the ocean. It's about 50 miles east of Bonaire, so Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, mm. about 50 miles east, but sadly it's part of Venezuela. So to get there, you got to go through or Caracas. I'm sorry to, yes. to get there, and I'm yeah not ready to do that with my 15 year old son yet. So so we'll get there eventually. Maybe eventually, yeah. um, we we go diving in Bonaire about once a year, and so it's you can almost see it. Got to get there at some point. Yeah. Speaking of diving, mm-hmm. you were also one of the Nemo aquanauts. Yes. Yeah. T- <laughs> tell us about that. And, and you may please a sentence or two about what Nemo is okay. for people who don't remember our previous coverage of it. Okay. So Nemo, which, you know, NASA is always wants to come up with some acronym to, you know, to call <laughs> things. So Nemo stands for NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. Well done. Well yes. Done. And it's, it's amazing that I remember that. But it basically we go underwater and live for an extended period of time in a, in a habitat called Aquarius. It's about the size of a school bus. Sits at 60 feet underwater. It is the closest analog to living and working in space. We have a full mission there, scientific, you know, operations that go on. We communicate with our topside team just the way we would from space with mission control. We've got experiments going on inside the habitat. We're going out a couple times every day in our scuba gear or our hard hat dive gear and walking around the surface of the ocean. EVA. And yeah, and we treat it like a spacewalk. We, with the calm protocols, the safety checks we go through before we exit the wet porch. And it is absolutely, Absolutely, the best like overall preparation for what it's going to be like to live and work in space. In space, okay, but do you think it might also be valuable for those uh, men and women who may someday live and work on the surface of Mars? Oh, absolutely. Or when we go back to the moon. I think there's total, um, the parallel is so beautiful. Uh, And I mean, a lot of what we were doing when we would go out on these EVAs from the habitat was you know, developing new surface exploration techniques, communication protocols, um, how you'll work with tools, building structures, you know, all those kinds of things that we'll do when we get back to the moon and go on to Mars. Great analog for space. Yep. Living in space. But it ain't living in space, which you've done. It's not living in space, (laughs) I will tell you that. But, you know, we call it inner space. You know, you go to space, you go to the space station. When we go back, to it's, that's kind of, that's the outer space thing. But um, there's definitely, a, I think there's a human value aspect to going and living in inner space as well. This relationship you develop with the planet by seeing it in a whole mm. new way from under the ocean to how we appreciate Earth when we see it from space as well. What would you call that, the, the underview effect? I don't I mean, Talk about the overview yeah, effect, which I'm sure um, had a lot to do with your artistic inspiration. It absolutely does. And, you know, because to me, the you know, I was going to be painting no matter what. So why not have the subject be this beautiful, part of this beautiful experience I had in space and to share that experience, both from the making people aware that are not, which... I mean, it's like having a fork in my eye when I think about people that don't know that we have a space station, don't know that for the past 20 years there has been continuous human presence in space. So we need to make people aware of that. Art is a, is a way to communicate with audiences that might not otherwise think of that. And communicate in a way that says, hey, everything we're doing up there is about improving life down here on Earth. And then getting to the overview effect thing, I think the art also allows me to share the experience from an earthling and earth appreciation standpoint. 
I think if you come back from space without having admitting that there's this life-changing hmm. effect that happens on you, then you're not human. <laughs> there's something <laughs> there's something wrong with you if there there is not like an overwhelming impact on your life as a result of it. And it might even be subtle. And I'll speak about it tonight. I mean, my main theme tonight is, and it sounds really simple, and it, you know, it might it fit with you with your theme too. Is that we live on a planet, and we are all Earthlings. I mean, that underlies everything else: the decisions we make, how we treat each other, you know, the interconnectivity of everything that's on one side of the planet to the other side of the planet, the interdependence that goes along with that, and the fact that we need to. We need to acknowledge that we live on a planet and we're all Earthlings. Nice to know that you're able to express this so yeah. well with words, just as you do <laughs> with a paintbrush. Um, that's a lot of what this is about. Yeah. Now, we have people who come here every year to Yuri's Night who may not be fully aware. They may right. be in that group that aren't fully aware that there is a space station, has yeah. been up there for 20 years. Why is this important to you, to do events like this? I mean, I feel obligated, first of all, and I feel, I don't know, maybe the word, I feel blessed to have had the opportunity to do what I did. You know, I still pinch myself every day. How in the, you know, why in the heck did they pick me, you know? So I'm thankful for that, that opportunity I had. I think there's something about it. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm rambling like a maniac about it. You know, I, you can, you almost like, I can't stop talking about it because... Uh, I think we need to share it, and we need to share it in a way that's not like, oh, I got to go to space and wasn't it beautiful? It's, you know, I went to space. Here's what we're doing to improve life on Earth because of it. When we go back to the moon, when we go on to Mars, we're going to these other places, but ultimately it's about improving life here on Earth and our place in the universe, our understanding that, our place in space. That's you what know? our boss says, yeah. And I think that whether somebody knows we have a space station or not, well, I think it's important, but, you know, for us to let them know that. But making them aware, having them accept the responsibility, perhaps, to acknowledge who and where we are is really, really important. And events like this do it. The more people that come to something like Yuri's Night where they're, you know, perhaps just thinking, hey, I'm celebrating this event that happened 57 years ago, if they get kind of the broader sense of what that's all about, I know, I think it's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. I got just one more thing to ask okay. you about because George Whitesides of yes. Virgin Galactic will yep. be sitting at that microphone okay. before too long. You have a 100 days patch. I do. He's going to be taking people up for just over 100 seconds yep. in Spaceship Two. Are you excited about lots more people? People like me, I should be so lucky getting to have a little tiny taste of what you've had. I am absolutely excited about it. And one of the things I'll say tonight is, I don't care if it's five minutes, if it's one orbit, if it's a hundred orbits, it gets in you. I mean, you see it, you feel it, and it just becomes part of you. And the more people we can have experience that, yeah, the better. I always also have to compliment every astronaut I see who is wearing his or her 20, uh, Mach 25 uh, yeah. patch. So. Super fast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This Thank has been you. delightful, Yeah, Nicole. I really appreciate it. Have a great uh, time at the party tonight. Thanks. You too. We'll be dancing. <laughs> Astronaut turned professional artist Nicole Stott at Yuri's Night LA on the evening of April 7, 2018.
Our coverage from Yuri's Night 2018 continues. George Whitesides has been my guest many times. He helped start the annual celebration of space back in 2001 on the 40th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's pioneering flight. Since then, George has led the National Space Society, served as NASA's chief of staff, and has been chief executive officer of Virgin Galactic for several years. As you've probably heard, the company's Spaceship 2, VSS Unity, returned to powered flight for the first time in more than three years. That flight was just two days before George sat down with me under Space Shuttle Endeavor. I don't really have a right to say this, but I was so proud to see that beautiful bird doing what it's supposed to do once again. Congratulations, George. Thanks a lot. It was a great day. All I have seen are other people throughout this busy hall also congratulating you because I guess in a sense we do share in this, even those of us who haven't put down a deposit. Yeah, I mean, I think the vision of Virgin Galactic is to open space up to all of us, right? It was a great get back to powered flight and we're looking forward to um, you know, flying again as soon as we get through data review and, and uh, make sure we understand you know, how, we're, how we're moving forward. This is not the best environment to get a report on that flight, but I, I take it things went pretty much exactly as you would have hoped. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were trying to do uh, a 30-second burn. Seemed to go well. You know, we'll have to go through data review to make sure that we understand everything. The rocket motor looked good. All the, uh, you know, various components of the, of the vehicle seemed to perform. So it's just great to be back in powered flight. Extremely exciting. I sure look forward to catching whether I have to go to New Mexico to watch a flight and talk to some more of those excited people who uh, are waiting for their for their turn. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be an exciting year this year as we uh, work our way through test flight and powered test flight. Certainly, I think our customers are excited that we're back in uh, powered flight. You know, it's just great to uh, be watching on the flight line and, you know, to see uh, vehicle uh, drop from the carrier aircraft and light the rocket and just keep flying going up it was really awesome it's really a different company now but can you say something also about that other division of virgin now that is going to start taking small payloads up into orbit sure yeah so virgin orbit is doing great uh we recently spun it out it's a fantastic group of people they're based down in long beach california yeah i mean i think you'll see a uh, flight by them later this year it's going to be uh, really spectacular. I think it's going to be the most responsive launch vehicle in the world. So, in other words, the time between making an order and being able to fly uh, will be the fastest in the world. And that's, um, I think, going to be a big advantage to some of these small companies that are trying to um, get up their constellations and, and also to the U.S. government. Back to Spaceship Two. Are you still looking forward to your ride? Yeah. Uh, you know, as you know, Matt, I've, I'm a customer as well as, a, as an employee and yeah, I can't wait. We only got up to order of magnitude 85, 90,000 feet with this flight, but you're still above about 90, 99% of the atmosphere at that point. And, you know, you get black sky and all that. And it's, uh, it's exciting to um, imagine what it'll be, you know, even higher. All right, before you go, just a word about what's going on here tonight and what has become this wonderful tradition for space. Yeah, well, Yuri's Night is, a, is an awesome event that celebrates the first anniversary of the, oh, sorry, the anniversary of the first human to go into space, but also the anniversary of the first space shuttle flight. And um, intrinsically, it's an international celebration of human spaceflight. What it's become is a celebration of, you know, art and music and space and culture and 
all those things and how they connect into our future. And uh, it's just a wonderful event and it's great. You know, Matt, you were around at the very beginning and it's hard to believe that like, whatever it is, 17, 18 years later, we're still doing it. Something, and uh, that's awesome. Something else I'm very proud of actually. Go have fun and George, thank you for doing this at Astra. At Astra, Matt, thanks. Virgin Galactic CEO, George Whitesides. We've got a link to my tour of the Mojave Desert plant where Spaceship Two was built on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. Mike Simmons has been another regular guest. He founded and leads Astronomers Without Borders. Mike Simmons, very happy to run into you here at Yuri's Night LA. I don't know how you got away. You're just beginning a very, very busy month. Oh, it's very busy. Global Astronomy Month all through April. And I've got a lot of travel, and this is in between, and I'm uh, delighted to have a chance to be here, and it was great to run into you, Matt. Global Astronomy Month, it will already have been well underway by the time people hear my conversation with you, although I I will have given you a plug, because this is such a, a wonderful celebration of not just astronomy, but science all over the world. It's science all over the world, and we appreciate all the plugs. We want people to know about it. It is the world's largest annual celebration of astronomy around the world. But it isn't just astronomy in the usual sense. We do have the Global Star Party. We do have other observing programs, challenges, things to learn. But in addition, we have astronomy in the arts. We have uh, campaigns where people can help others in countries that are more you know, have trouble getting telescopes and things like that. We have a lot of online programs. The theme this year is the moon, and we have already had something that was a great show on the art of Chesley Bonestell, one of the early people who really shaped what space looks like to all of us, especially those of us of a certain age who grow up with that. And we're gonna have more about the moon and the science of the moon and other moons with uh, some really uh, top scientists, and then the future of lunar exploration. And we've got a bunch of other stuff going on. It really is like a party for a month. And you mentioned Bonestell. Every space artist I have ever talked to, they look to him as basically their god. There's even a clip that we played from this new movie about Chesley Bonestell that's going to be coming out. That's what it was all based on, and it's really fantastic. One clip we played uh, had Douglas Trumbull and some others talking about his, uh, Bonasol's influence on 2001, why it looked the way it did, and it's unmistakable. And you know, it's interesting because I've heard that Elon Musk, when he's, he's now designing spacesuits for people that will be going up on his craft, and he's interested in the design. It's not just utilitarian, but he wants them to look like they're supposed to look like. And it's people that have gone before that have shaped what we think rockets and spacesuits are supposed to look like. We were talking with Nicole Stott, she was sitting in the chair you're in right now, about this intersection of art and science. Seems like that's where you're going. In fact, Nicole has been one of our Astro Artists of the Month, where she talked about, uh, in four blog posts, her work and what inspires her. She, of course, does a tremendous amount more than that, but she has been a part of our programs and uh, will continue to be. She's a fantastic proponent of art and science working together. And when I've talked with her and she feels the same way that if you're doing astronomy, whether it's art or whether it's science or engineering, or 
we're just looking at the, that science in different ways. It's really different parts of the same thing. Like there's one core, but we're looking in through different directions, different filters. You've got stuff going on all month, right? Right to the end of April with Global Astronomy Month. So we do have stuff going on all month, and some of it, even though this will air later in the month, you'll be able to pick up later the Facebook Live uh, online programs that we do. Many of the other things, too, people are already starting to report from around the world on the uh, events that they have held. And then in the last part of the month, we do have the Global Star Party is later on. We have that uh, future space exploration. We have contests that are going on all month, too. Astro Poetry, which turns out to be a really big thing, which I never would have predicted when I started this. Astro Art Contest for Children. And we have participants from everywhere around the world. Still traveling the world, Mike? <laughs> well, I do get around a little. In fact, I just got back from Japan about a week ago, and in a couple days I'm going to Brazil for an annual meeting they have down there. This year is, is a busy one. Some years are, some years aren't. Keep it up. You're doing wonderful work with astronomers uh, without borders. I am honored to talk to you once again. Wonderful to, to run into you here and have the chance to do this with you, Matt. Thanks a lot. Mike Simmons. My conversation with citizen astronaut Anusha Ansari will close our special coverage of Yuri's Night LA, but first, a quick visit with the emergency medical hologram that materialized right in front of me at the Party for Space. Well, who should we meet at uh, Yuri's Night LA 2018 other than Bob Picardo? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I am a regular visitor to Yuri's Night here in Los Angeles at the California Science Center. It's a great party. You said you're the only... Trek cast member here tonight. Yes, last year I think we had four Star Trek members. It's down to me. I am the, what's the word? The hardcore. <laughs> you have to represent the entire franchise. The entire franchise. That's right, true. Well, make it so. Make uh, it so. <laughs> while, while we're talking about representing that franchise, there's another one, the Planetary Society. You're having quite a great run with the Planetary Post. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored by that since you are the host of Planetary Radio. For those of you who don't know, and I can't imagine that you listen to Planetary Radio and you don't know, but I host a monthly video newsletter called The Planetary Post about what's cool that's happening in space that month. I hope you'll check it out. Uh, you can subscribe for free, and it will be delivered into your email box the moment it's uploaded. And it is enormously entertaining, as well as informative. Well, thank you very much. This month, we have guest appearances by Seth MacFarlane, uh, I was guest starring again on the Orville, and Seth was our substitute host for the month, or kind of a joke, but he, he was the temporary substitute host until he was aced out by uh, our, uh, our science director, uh, Dr. Bruce Betts. And also we have a guest appearance by the seventh Doctor Who. I'm not going to quiz you. I'm not going to ask if you know who the seventh Doctor Who is. I'm a trekker. I would not know. Well, that's all right. When you say that to me, it's okay. <laughs> but anyway, this is the one of the great parties in Los Angeles, and I encourage all of your listeners, if you're not here tonight for Yuri's Night 2018, then put it on your calendar to come next year. It's a celebration of the first human in space. Or one of the other Yuri's Night parties that are taking place all around the globe from now through what is actually Yuri's Night, which is April 12th, the anniversary. It's a, it's a great celebration of the, of the triumph of the human spirit and discovery 
and also not only looking back, but looking forward to our future in space. I got just one more for you, back to the Planetary Post. Your operatic tribute to Cassini, it really has to be heard. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, I appreciate that very much. If you, uh, if you punch in your search box, Picardo Cassini, two Italian <laughs> words, uh, you will hear my operatic tribute to the tremendous success of the 20-year Cassini mission. Uh, it's a little silly, but it's, uh, it's heartfelt, and I do all my own singing. And it includes a, a heaping helping of Linguini as well. Yes, well, it, when, you're, when you're rhyming Cassini, you're, you've got limited <laughs> choices, uh, so Linguini is definitely on the menu. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be your Thank colleague. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much. And go to a Yuri's Night Party. Some year, somewhere on the planet, you will have the time of your life. You won't be sorry. Actor, host, and Planetary Society board member Robert Picardo. Anusha Ansari was born in Iran. She arrived in the United States as a teenager in 1984. She would become an engineer, an entrepreneur, the founder of several companies, and the first Iranian or Persian in space. That happened when she lifted off on Soyuz TMA-9 in 2006. By that time, she, members of her family, and Peter Diamandis, had also created the Ansari X Prize, the competition that led directly to the triumphant flights of Spaceship One, the older sister of Spaceship Two. This is such an overdue conversation, and it is not the ideal place to, to have a conversation with you, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk to a true space pioneer. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a big part of your life, isn't it? Sharing your experience of space. Absolutely. Um, there are only about 550 people who have experienced space, and there are 7 billion people on this planet. And I think this world will be completely a different world if maybe even one-fifth of it had this experience. So we use this type of you know, events, uh, speaking to schools, students, different audiences to just share a glimpse of what we've seen from space. You mentioned 550 people. It's a tiny fraction of that, though, who had your status, who said, I want to go, and you had the ability to, to arrange that. Are you looking forward to, it could now be happening very soon with the success now of Spaceship Two just a few days ago, pretty soon you may have company. Absolutely. Um, this was my dream since I was six years old. And uh, the first thing uh, I was able to do to help the movement of this new space society's creation uh, was uh, sponsoring the X Prize. So when I met Peter and became part of that, my hope was that through the innovation we're sparking, we'll build an industry. And now I'm sitting here uh, since uh, 14 years later, and I see that a whole new industry has been born from it. And there are all these new companies building technologies, building hardware, you know, sending uh, payloads to space. So it's very exciting to see. I think in the past, you know, decade or so, the advancements we've made is equal or not, if not greater than what has happened in the past 50 years. So it's exciting to see that. It's exciting to see the enthusiasm of the young people again about space. And I want to thank you for the Ansari X Prize because I strongly suspect Spaceship Two would not be flying today if it had not been for that kickstart 
that you and people like Peter Diamandis were able to give him. Absolutely, I think it was, uh, you know, a lot of people had to come together. We inspired the innovators. Uh, of course, Bert Rutan came up with this amazing design and it was the vision of uh, Richard Branson who brought it to life and made it into an actual business and company. And his perseverance over this past, you know, several years to actually take it from what it was sort of a proof of concept flight to an actual business. So my kudos to him. I'll tell you, it was one of the best days of my life when I was standing at the edge of the tarmac covering it for our show, and that uh, that prize was won. Yes, no, it was uh, such a special moment for me and everyone who was involved with it. We never knew that if it's going to be won or not. That was the last year that it, the prize could be won. And, uh, you know, we were so excited because at that moment when the prize was won, we all realized that the whole space industry will be different from this day forward. We will not be only uh, going to space with the government space agencies and there is a new door that has just opened up. So we were extremely excited and then I saw my future of going to space when, I, when that moment happened. So you realized your childhood dream. Do you want to go back? I want to go live in space. Uh, if I can go and live on, you know, on moon, on Mars, on space station, travel outside of our solar system, I would go. I, I'm completely de dedicated and devoted to, to uh, living in space. Well, if anybody's capable of pulling that off, I suspect it's you. So best of luck with that. And thank you. Thank you for spending a couple of minutes uh, with us here at Yuri's Night. My, my pleasure. It's fun to be here and share the passion of so many people that are excited about space. Anusha Ansari, citizen astronaut and co-creator of the Ansari X Prize. That completes our special coverage of Yuri's Night 2018 at the California Science Center in Los Angeles, California. I hope to return for next year's celebration of space and the human spirit. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. As always, joined now by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, that is Dr. Bruce Betts. Welcome. Thank you. How are you, Matt? I'm doing really well. It was such a great time. I had such fun at Yuri's Night. I just am, am amazed that uh, we, we get to have these wonderful people uh, that we uh, have just heard from on the show, none of whom you've heard yet because I haven't <laughs> I haven't published it. It's uh, like a secret. Head. You'll have to trust me. They're really good. <laughs> I'm sure they are. So what's really good up in the night sky? Oh, what's really good is Venus low in the west shortly after sunset. It's gotten a little higher. It is spectacular. And then Jupiter coming up in the early evening over in the east, also very, very bright. And it's coming up on opposition in a few weeks, the opposite side of the Earth from the sun. Then rising around midnight, 1 a.m. in the east, and then high up in the south before dawn are Mars and Saturn. Mars now brightening, and so it's a little brighter than Saturn and looking reddish. So that was not Mars I saw last night. There was some other red imposter. <laughs> There are those red imposters, red stars. Damn them. <laughs> we, we move on to this week in space history. 
1971 that the first space station was launched, Salyut 1, the Soviet Salyut 1. I forgot that it beat out Skylab. It did indeed. We move on to a random space fact. Sort of a crooner. Random. I know, we'll save that for later. New segment, Constellation Coincidences. Hmm. The star Alpharots is both the top of the mythological woman Andromeda's head and the rear end of the flying horse Pegasus. <laughs> this has led to both the expression, get your head out of your Alpharots, and the expression, Andromeda is a horse's ass. You know, I used to have friends who uh, would frequently say to me that my head is like a butt. I guess they had Andromeda in mind. <laughs> oh, that is that is the saddest story I've ever heard on this show. <laughs> yeah, there's even a response to it, which is that uh, your nose is soft and pliant like a baby's bottom. But uh, that's a story I'll explain another time. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All these years for this revelation. It was college radio hijinks. Uh, it, it's really not worth going into. <laughs> were there shenanigans? There were indeed. Well, let's just move on to the trivia contest. I ask you, what is currently the second farthest spacecraft from Earth where function is not a requirement? How would we do, Matt? You only fooled a few people with that, and, and you didn't really fool them at all. You made it very clear that you, as you just said, they don't have to be functioning. Therefore, Paul McEwen of Cleveland, Ohio, who, if he's got this right, is a first-time winner, though a long-time listener, he says Pioneer 10, which we stopped hearing from in 2003. It has second place in what he calls the get-out-of-here interstellar derby, correct? That is correct. He adds, V'ger, Voyager 1, still maintains the lead. But Stephen Hawking's breakthrough starshot probes would promptly overtake and leave everything else in the dust if they are ever launched. Something we've talked about on this show, those little tiny uh, laser-driven sails. Paul, congratulations. You have won that great book by a planetary scientist, Bethany Elman of uh, Caltech, Ease Superstellar Solar System. And that's uh, from the National Geographic Kids Press. Also, a 200-point itelescope.net account. Uh, by the way, Paul listens to us on Cleveland's alternative FM radio, 89.3 WCSB. Well, that's cool. Mel Powell has a bone to pick with you, at least uh, in the way the question was phrased, which was, what is currently the second part of the spacecraft from Earth? He says, we have no idea what distant civilizations have launched spacecraft. How can we answer this question as phrased? If, say, the Vulcans have ever launched even just one weather satellite, that's farther from Earth than first place Voyager 1, isn't it? Your response, well, sir. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a point. That's definitely a point. <laughs> Speaking of Star Trek, Mark Wilson in uh, San Diego, my hometown, he said that uh, actually Pioneer 10 will be destroyed by a Klingon bird of prey in the year 2287. Uh, true. Look it up. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. It's our, it's our fake news department. <laughs> Anna Grunseth, Green Bay, Wisconsin. She says uh, in our special section we have, you know, you get to send us a note if you enter the contest. There's a section that says special greeting or message. She says no special greeting needed. Pioneer 10's plaque already took care of that. Hmm. 
Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate, submitted uh, some verse, uh, actually two verses this time. Voyager 1 is the farthest we know. It's out in the heliopause. With Pioneer 10 sitting seconds away, they both deserve lots of applause. But back on the rail and coming up fast, a dark horse is flying through space. Hold on to your hats because April next year gives Voyager 2 second place. Exactamundo. That's um, Latin. <laughs> no, that's correct. That's what, part of what I thought was interesting about this is it's currently the second farthest is Pioneer 10, but not not too long until Voyager 2 uh, takes over as the second farthest. And then Andrew Kerr in Bethesda, Maryland says, wait another 200 years and it'll be New Horizons. Hmm. That's that's interesting. We uh, We better check that out. We'll get on that. We're ready for next time. Continuing on in Andromeda land, because we found out she's got a fascinating story. In Greek mythology, who were Andromeda's mother and father? Hint, all three have constellations named after them. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, April 25th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And what is waiting for you if you win? Well, of course, a 200-point itelescope.net account that you can use or, or donate to some other worthy organization or school to do astronomy all over the world from that uh, nonprofit network of telescopes. And I know we said we were going to start giving away Planetary Radio t-shirts again. That's okay. We can do that. But... We also have another Planetary Society rubber asteroid because Anna, our winner of the asteroid last week, she's already got one. And so she said she knows they're in short supply and in high demand. Well, we'll see. So you can win a Planetary Society rubber, excuse me, rubber asteroid, uh, as well as that itelescope.net account. How very generous. It is, aren't we? Aren't we ever? And we're done, too. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about those little erasers you put on the top of pencils once you've worn out the eraser, if anyone actually uses pencils anymore. Thank you, and good night. I love those. I love all pencil erasers, actually. One of my favorite <laughs> possessions was a pink pearl as a kid. <laughs> this, this doesn't tie to the butt story, does it? Yeah, this is probably why they said my head was like a butt. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Please finish the show. That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist for the Planetary Society who joins us every week, no matter how reluctantly, for what's up. <laughs> Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its space partying members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan at Astro. Astro.